Hey listeners, today's episode deals with topics of suicide, gun violence, child abuse, and domestic abuse. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed in the description. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. What has been the high point of the week for you? Mm. The high point for the week for me is that I'm I'm dealing with a very bad illness. I don't know what it is. It's headache related. Anyone out there who suffers with migraines of any type, I have a huge amount of empathy and respect for you. This is terrible. Um, the high point about it is I really am appreciative and grateful for how I've been able to lean on you and Miles and my partner Davey and his family. So you folks are the best. And that's really my high point. It's, you know, high on a low, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Well, my high point of last week was having coffee with you for several oh. hours before your illness befell you. Uh, that was um, the best. That was really fun. I liked that a lot. I really liked that too. <laughs> I'm sorry it got muddied by me going home and like... It was so weird to like be like, oh, I just left like a great like three hour like coffee convo with Matt and then like Davey calling and being like, I'm at the hospital with Matt. It was like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> what I happened? I literally came home oh and God. I was like, I'm in the best mood. I'm going to tell you about what we were talking about. I'm really excited. And then I went downstairs to like change, use the restroom and under 10 minutes, the headache just got so intense and I was just like calling Davey down from upstairs <laughs> and he was like, what are you talking about? And he came downstairs and I was just like blinding pain so Ugh, weird God. life is weird take care of yourselves people it sure is life is weird and i feel like life just continues to throw curveballs at everyone mm. all the time yep gotta be prepared well i hope you feel better soon thank you um have you like been watching anything new or fun that you want to recommend oh, i should really start writing these things down <laughs> what did we watch just the other day. Oh, you know what we've been watching? Visible on Apple TV Plus. Have you seen what it? What was it called? Visible? No. Oh, What's it about? it's great. It's a five-part docu limited series, docu-series on queer visibility in media and queer representation Wait, over time. It's not It's not Disclosure. Is that what you're saying? No. Disclosure okay. was on Netflix. So it's, that's the Laverne Cox documentary, That's right? Laverne Cox, yeah. This yeah is Laverne Cox is also in this and they talk about disclosure in this so it came out afterwards okay as like an example of some recent trans representation on TV but it goes over like the whole history of how queer people have been represented on TV and in media the advancements that TV made with things like Will and Grace and other TV shows mm -hmm. that started showing the queer community on TV but how that like grossly overlooked people of color the trans community yeah. like the real gay experience just a lot of really interesting empowering um it's it's great i would highly recommend it it's five episodes long they're all about an hour long and it's it's so 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 beautiful and say the name one more time visible i'm just writing that down for myself but also i'll put it in the uh recommendations on our website that are coming very soon Yay. i uh on that theme also have you ever seen the celluloid closet it's kind of a it's probably from maybe 15 years ago that talks about queer representation in hollywood we talked about it once on our other podcast because i saw found out about that from watching disclosure disclosure yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. okay it's another good one that I would recommend for that. Uh, it kind of talks about queerness generally and how it's represented in cinema 
uh, kind of through the early 2000s, I think. But it's it's really fascinating just, just to see the kind of dominant patterns within media representing queerness and kind of what that says and what people can glean from it and all that kind of stuff. One thing they talk about a lot is also the the days of like the 60s and 70s um, when like Match Game and Hollywood Squares and you had people like Charles Nelson Reilly who were clearly, clearly mm. gay men, but yeah. they weren't allowed to be out at that time. And they were allowed to skirt that line. Right. You know, and I remember watching like Bewitched and seeing Uncle Arthur and being like, oh, yeah, he's, yeah, that's, that's like me. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, 100%. I wanted to recommend a documentary called Crack. And it's on Netflix. Have you heard it? Seen it? No. It's about crack. It's literally about the crack epidemic and the history of um, crack cocaine development usage, um, its effects on the Black community, its um, connection to the Iran-Contra kind of scandal and... It's maybe only an hour and 20 minutes. It's pretty short, uh, but it's it's really, boy, is it heartbreaking because you, a lot of the people they speak to are people who were kind of in these, na- in these predominantly Black neighborhoods in New York, and when crack cocaine, like, got introduced, the intense way that it just ravaged the black community and then they also place it in this converse like this uh broader context around why was the criminalization of Mm. crack cocaine literally like 10 times stronger than it was for powder cocaine Mm. it's like well it's a you know that's a a drug that's used by the like white elite and this is a drug that is used by like lower socioeconomic status communities and communities of color and so it was a way to kind of continually police and enforce um you know drug wars and then you've got fucking nancy reagan and her just say no bullshit Oh my god. Um, so it's it's a really good documentary. So again, it's it's just called Crack. And if you don't know a whole lot about the history of crack cocaine, it's fascinating. Uh so I highly, highly recommend it. I really I didn't know an iota of information that I thought it did on that. I really yeah. totally as a child of the nineties, I totally bought into the whole just I know dare. Thing. Yeah, well, like, it, it really hard. <laughs> I mean, it really it's one of those documentaries that as you watch it, you you kind of are just continually thinking about how our entire criminal justice system is based on the premise that whenever somebody commits an act that is like determined to be illegal, it is because of some like moral failing and not anything about the like conditions around them and you know, social restrictions and and oppression and things like that. And so when you watch it, you're like, oh, all of this, like, just say no rhetoric is really just reinforcing that anybody who uses drugs is a moral failure. And so therefore, we should punish them. And, you know, that will correct it and all of that. And instead, it just makes the problem infinitely worse. So hard to watch documentary, but really, really good and really worth watching. Right. I'm going to check that out. So before we get into the episode, another thing that sort of happened in this past week that I think we would be remiss to not mention is the um, shootings that happened in Atlanta that were targeting massage parlors and predominantly um, targeting women of Asian descent, um, and six women lost their lives and uh, were killed by the shooter, who is... 
by all accounts, you know, this was a this was a white supremacist terrorist attack, and it has been in the media and through like police spokespeople been sort of like portrayed as like the shooter was quote having a bad day. That is literally what the um, police chief said in the news briefing. And I've heard a lot of things about this over the past week, including that many of the family members of the women who were killed would prefer that their names not be out in the news. And so I think we should not say their names out of respect for that. And just kind of, I think, want to reinforce the message that it's so important that we look at the ways that racist hate shows up in our communities. And the one of the things I think we try to do with the show is talk about things like media representation and what it means that we see certain patterns over and over in media and how much of that contributes to ideas about racial equity or inequity. And um, I don't know. I'm almost at a loss for words about what to say because it's all just so foul. But my, my heart really goes out to any folks who are experiencing trauma this week related to the Atlanta shooting and, and the increased rates of violence against um, folks of Asian descent in the United States right now in the context of the pandemic. Because it's, it's a, I think, a really, really hard time for, for those, those folks in those communities right now. So if you have the ability to, I know there are a number of GoFundMes out there for the family members surviving the the victims and supporting them. Um, so if you have the means to donate those, I encourage that. And if you don't, I encourage you to just read up a little bit on um, anti-Asian bias and the very long history that this country has of that, the very xenophobic history we have of um, things like the Chinese Exclusion Act that literally barred Chinese immigration for a number of years. You know, it's it's not new. It's just a current day manifestation of a long standing history of hate, exclusion, fear, oppression against Asian people in Asian communities. So encourage you to do what you can to support those folks and those communities right now and to learn more about it if it's something you don't know a whole lot about. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit, a little, a few seconds ago that, you know, this isn't new. This is, this is the current violent attack that happened. This is the current tragedy that we're all looking at. This is something that everybody is being told about on the news, but violence against the Asian American community is not new to the Asian American community. It's, it's a similar experience when you don't understand something, you don't see it. You think, you know, you are past it. You think you're past it. You think it doesn't happen and I hate that it often takes a huge tragedy for anybody to take notice um, yes. or for anybody to pay attention. I hate that it has to be a sensationalized news story or hot topic issue at the moment for for things to happen, for people yeah. to wake up or whatever phrase you want to use. But in, in addition to everything Enema's saying, just if you don't know what, what to do, if you don't have the resources to donate, if you have no clue what you, what to do to try to contribute to a better Positive tomorrow, change. yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I would encourage you to a read up on on what's going on in the world, read up on the tragic ways in which racism and Asian American hate shows up, and then have a conversation with somebody about it. Talk to somebody yeah. that you love about it, even if you need to talk to somebody who you feel safe with talking about it, who you know is 
on your same page who won't judge you first. Share stuff on your social media at the very least. The conversations need to happen, and it can't just be a news article that we see because, like we do right. in this show, these are human beings. These are these are people, and it's it's not it's not a statistic. It's not no. it's a, a tally on a sheet. These are human beings. These are people's lives, and definitely the reason why it's not uh, why it takes a tragedy for people to notice it is because everyone is so used to it. It's just normal. Yeah. It's just regular. It's just fine. And it's it's just a joke and lighten up. And then well, and until it's not. I feel like I have like a hundred different lines of thought that I want to go down, but I'm going to go down this one. You know, I'm remind when we're talking about media representation and, and the problematic portrayals of certain communities and identities, it's important to realize that those are not accidental portrayals, that there is deliberate thought behind them. There is documentation that during the time of the Vietnam War, when we were losing this conflict, there was a an intentional media strategy facilitated and pushed by the government to portray Asian men as less masculine, to like demasculinize Asian men generally as a political strategy to make us as these American people better, stronger, whatever. Um, and by American, I of course mean white American. Um, and so, so these, from that point, and of course before that, but specifically from that point, there's a lot, you see a lot of the history of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Demasculating is not the word. Oh, uh, for. emasculation? Thank you. Emasculating of Asian men in media and how there's, you know, only a couple of specific roles that Asian men play in media. And it's either like the geeky computer nerd or the ninja are like the two representations that you see of Asian men in the media. And both of those are not, are like one dimensional characters that don't have a complex backstory. They are, um, emasculated in the sense of like never having uh, a romantic connection with people. So there's there's a really long history of really problematic representation of Asian men and Asian women. Uh, yeah, so I think just learning more about that helps, I think, to contextualize like why do people believe certain things? Why do people see certain identities and communities as disposable or, you know, whatever. So there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> a lot I could say, and my brain is... Uh, T trying to take me in 20 different directions with it right now. So let's talk about Law & Order then. Let's talk about Law & Order the show. <laughs> All right. So I am the episode recapper this week. And yet again, I was immediately vindicated. Uh, I felt like a great person <laughs> because yet again, this episode opened with Beat Cops. And I said this whole season we were going to get four beat cop openings and we've already knocked two out of the park within the first three episodes yeah that's pretty good so this is episode three of season two of law and order and it is called aria which is a opera song for a single voice and also the name of one of my favorite characters in game of thrones i was gonna say that but i was like you know what i bet and we'll say it <laughs> <laughs> And it's so funny, whenever I'm the episode recapper, I don't know what the true crime is. So whenever I'm watching the episode, I'm trying to kind of figure out what it is. And Matt had mentioned to me at our at our little coffee date that this was a big case. And so the whole time I was like, gosh, who could this be? And I'm just going to tell you my two 
get like things that I immediately ruled out the minute they came into my brain. I was like, Kim Kardashian? No, this is way before Kim Kardashian. Mm-hmm. I was like, Paris Hilton? No, this is way before Paris Hilton. Like I could not figure out who this could be. And I do think actually that it's a pretty loose connection to the true crime, but I'm very excited to hear you tell the story. Yeah, I, it, it's definitely a loose connection. I knew who it was before I watched the episode. So the whole episode, okay. and I had done some research, I'd watched some documentaries already, so I kind of was knowledged up. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched the episode and I was like, and Davey was too, because he was very interested in in this one. So we're watching all the stuff and then we're, we're like, uh, I guess that's a connection. I guess that kind of is. And, you know, they, they, they pound out some more solid connections later in the episode, but it's definitely very loose. But I have to yeah. say, I think it's better when it's very loose. The episode, at least. I agree. Yeah. yeah. All right. So this episode opens with some beat cops having some nonsense conversation that is not important. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, am I wrong? Okay. So they're talking their they're talking their talk, and they hear in the background like two men in an alley, kind of having a conversation. And I was very confused at first because the men's conversation went like this: "A horse is a horse, of course. My kingdom for a horse." And I was like what? And then I realized, oh, it's like the back door of a theater. And this is like the theater troupe doing their nonsense in the back alley behind the theater. Got it. Mm, Yeah. Which by the way, theater kids don't do that. No. Somebody comes out and tells the two men like, hey, get that those that stuff back to costume because they're like wearing capes or, you know, medieval clothing or whatever. (laughs) So we follow one of the actors back inside the theater and he's walking into the costume department. He's like, Hey Priscilla, are you decent? And, and he's like trying to return his clothing and he like turns around and sees a girl kind of like on the ground slumped over a chair. And he's like, you don't have to like, are you praying? Like what's happening? And then he sees that her hand is like on the phone and he kind of like touches her and she basically falls over. She's barely clinging to consciousness. And she just keeps saying, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. So then Logan and Soretta show up and we learn that the woman's name is Priscilla Blaine and they think that it might have been an overdose um, or something and they're, you know, confused as to why they're there and the beat cops basically are like, well, it looks like an overdose, but she kept saying, I didn't want to do it. So she she did pass away. Um, she died from these, whatever she took. Uh, but now this this kind of like last ditch effort to like make a phone call and the like, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it makes them think that maybe there's something at play here. So then we get the title sequence. And so inspired by the opening scene, I auditioned and earned the starring role in a traveling theater company's world tour of Hamlet. And after a 60 city tour, we came back and the title sequence was over. Congratulations. Thank you. You were so good I had to work pretty there. hard for it. Also, do you like that I did a 60-city tour in the middle of a pandemic? None of this is true. Okay, so we're at the medical examiner's office with Logan and Soretta, and he tells them that she overdosed on antidepressants, and what she took could have killed a small elephant. And he's also kind of like, there's no other signs of injury on her, which is weird, although she had an ace bandage on her ankle, but there was nothing wrong with it. So kind of weird, kind of strange. We cut to the mom's apartment, again with Logan and Soretta, and she tells them that her daughter Priscilla wasn't into drugs, and they ask her if they know if she if she knew that her daughter Priscilla was seeing a psychiatrist. 
she says something about like we were gonna have new headshots taken next week the mom is very strange in all of this and i would like to hear if you remember i don't know how long ago you watched it i would really love to hear your description of the mother's hair oh it wasn't that long ago okay my first thought was like a dark rotten artichoke (laughs) (laughs) artichoke shape spiny it looks like it could be a plant in like a um tim burton movie yes it was very strange hair it was poison tree it was hair it almost looked like a a thousand little daggers like her hair was just in it was so they could totally restyle her hair and make her like a world of warcraft character if she were in an anime her hair would be able to turn into knives like her hair would like tentacles off of her head that were oh like my razor sharp knives yeah. every time she turned her head quickly they'd go Fing! yes <laughs> and 100 percent. like a little shine would go through one mm-hmm. blade of the hair <laughs> that's right very strange haircut on this woman okay so she says that ever since her daughter could talk she wanted to be a performer and that of course reminded me of one of my most embarrassing moments in history uh that i that is on our website in my in my bio where I talk about how when I was 14, I said to my dad on like the ride to school that I wanted an agent and a cell phone for my birthday. <laughs> I'd like that this year. I don't think, I think he, I can, I still remember the just endless laughter that like the whole rest of the car ride was just him laughing endlessly about that. It's very comment. like Manny on Modern Family. <laughs> A hundred percent. And I had no business getting an agent and a cell phone at 14, but what do I know? (laughs) So we cut to the academy where she was, you know, studying and and learning dance and theater and all that stuff. It's at some kind of prestigious academy that um, she was attending. And they're interviewing the other theater kids who are all dressed pretty incredibly. I feel like there's some good outfits that we can talk about on our little fashion review that we're going to put on the Patreon. Oh yeah, this was a, a great, great little ensemble. It was awesome. <laughs> and they're, you know, say they, they said she didn't do drugs. She was too focused. She was happy. And so they're asking, um, could somebody have pressured her into taking these pills? And somebody's like, no, no one around here was into that. By the way, I'm pretty sure they mentioned at the beginning of the episode that the pills were like antidepressants. And maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a I'm not a person who abuses pills or has a, a pill usage problem. But I don't think anyone takes antidepressants recreationally, do they? I don't think anybody does. To I don't think that's the entry drug. I think that yeah. might be like you know I'm I'm hard up and I'm I'm an addict and I need something. Something, yeah. I guess it was just so strange because it, it the, the whole episode was sort of like framing it around this like pill usage, mm-hmm. and it seemed like the writers maybe had never like <laughs> talked, understood what antidepressants were or anything, and they were just like, "It's pills. Let's make a story about pills." Anyway, <laughs> so they go to interview her ex boyfriend, uh, who it's at a beautiful restaurant, like beautiful big windows, and he tells the Logan and Soretta that she didn't do drugs; she only took took birth control and then he goes god only knows why and they're like what do you mean and apparently a few months before they broke up she stopped wanting to do anything intimate and said that she was seeing someone about it so then we find out that she was seeing a therapist so we go to interview her therapist 
he tells them that he can't really tell them anything. It still falls under uh, patient-client confidentiality, even after death. And he is like, I could tell you things if you could get the executor of their estate to basically determine that it's in the best interest of finding out what happened to her. And so the person that they have to get to waive that is the mother. They go and talk to the mother again, who is for some reason talking about how her daughter recently cut her hair and (laughs) it's like felicity um, all over again (laughs) yeah it's like your daughter is dead and you're having this weird conversation about her haircut but okay she says maybe she didn't want anyone to know what she was going through i don't see any reason to change that now so she's basically saying no whatever secrets she had between her and her therapist they're gonna stay secret i'm not gonna overrule that for your investigation. So they go and talk to uh, Priscilla, the the girl who's passed away, her sister. And her sister and her haven't spoken in a couple of years because apparently her mom, this new this sister is talking about how their mom was kind of a nightmare. And she was basically like a, a big stage mom who forced them into constant acting lessons and such. And she got out of it and you know, hasn't seen her mom or Priscilla in a while, but Priscilla was, quote, our mom's last hope. Our only hope. So they're thinking like, yeah, (laughs) help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) So they go to interview some more of her friends. and they. I'm sorry. Did you point out who that actress was? Oh, okay. I I know it was somebody famous, Maura Rooney or something? Maura Tierney. Maura Tierney. That's it. She was on ER for like 10 years. Right. That's right. Shortly yes. after, not shortly. Well, she was on news radio. I remember. I don't know if you watched news radio back in the day. I didn't. No. Oh, it was funny. She was in that, and then she was in ER. And I read that she got cast on ER as like a side, like kind of role. And they were so uh-huh. impressed with her that she became like the main character for the last like ten. Oh yeah, ten yeah, seasons. yeah. Good go, for you, Maura Tierney. Go you, Maura. Look at you on Law and Order. Speaking of which, on Facebook, I just came across a BuzzFeed list that uh, was all, all of the guest stars on Charmed who like went on to do bigger and better things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the the article opened with the biggest star on the list was um, Amy Adams was on <sighs> an episode of Charmed. Did you know that? I feel like I've read this before, but I don't remember her at all on the show. She was unlucky Maggie, Maggie May. Um, she was being tormented by a dark lighter (laughs) god no wonder i don't remember she's literally one of my favorite actresses you know i still haven't been able to finish sharp objects (gasps) it just hasn't gripped me wow okay maybe it's just not your thing i know i know but i just started true detective over from the beginning because i watched all of the first season except the last episode Mm. i do want to really watch at least the first season of that for sure Oh, you've never seen it? No, and it's like semi been ruined for me. Obviously, it's been a million years, so I can't be mad. But um, we didn't have HBO when it came out, and I just waited. Oh, uh, I would encourage. I think you'll like it because it's it's got a similar feel to Sharp Objects, where it's like in the South, kind of that sort like Southern Gothic feel oh, I love to that. it. I love yeah, that. Yeah, so I think you'll really like it. So um, they go to interview another friend named Jasmine, and she says that Priscilla hasn't really been herself lately, and she goes, she even left her backpack here. And they look over at this bright pink neon backpack that looks like they ripped it off the back of Dora the Explorer. <laughs> and, it okay, that backpack had no business being the prop for a fully grown adult. I, that was a 12-year-old's backpack. It was so neon pink and green it was so neon i expect when they when she's like oh she even left her backpack and they find it there like right on the floor when he picked it up and he's like this backpack 
I was like, how did that not have a radiating pink and green glow off camera? <laughs> it's Honestly, so, it's, it's so like bright. radioactive bright neon. Oh my god. Okay, so they're back at the police station and they're going through the backpack. And in it, they pull out a VHS tape, which made me laugh <laughs> so hard to just like see that on television again. I was like, oh yeah, VHS tapes. That's That's the era we're in right now. Yep. It is unlabeled, but they put it into a tape, a cassette, a VCR. That's what it's called. Oh, wow. <laughs> that that verb or that noun fell out of my brain. <laughs> uh, and inside they find what looks like basically something from the Spice Channel where she's, you know, <laughs> like, Spice it's clearly pornography, but it's sort of like softcore porn that they're showing because it's an episode of Law & Order. They can't just show hardcore porn. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a organization called Candlelight Productions. I'd, I'd like to make fun of the name, but I've seen some porn names that are very similar. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> so they kind of track down, are trying to track down how she got involved in this. They end up at an adult film shop where they're talking to some guy who knows a little bit about Candlelight Productions. It's a business that went out of business six weeks ago. They kind of talk about how the adult film industry is sort of this like fly-by-night operation where, you know, a business closes, but it's the same people who open up another one under a different name a few weeks later, blah, blah. And so he kind of points them toward a man named Jay-Z who she had apparently been meeting with a couple times a week. He is the owner of a strip club in Chelsea, and um, Priscilla had apparently been dancing there. They're like, who is this Jay-Z? We don't know a Jay-Z. And all I could think of was, how do you not know (laughs) Jay-Z? No, we were like, hello. (laughs) So they go to this club where Priscilla was supposedly uh, stripping a couple nights a week, and they meet the owner who looks like Ed McMahon, and, uh, but with dark hair. And he says that he hasn't even seen Priscilla in three months, that she was getting some film interest, and that, like, took her away from dancing. They're like, do you mean pornography? And he's like, yeah. So he points them toward the director of the film, who we get a quick scene with in his apartment, and he says that Priscilla's mom was the one who set Priscilla up to work with his adult film company. And they were like, she knew about it. And he was like, oh, yeah, she dropped her off every day. And sometimes she would hang around on set and watch how things go. (laughs) And all I could think of was uh, uh, Chris Jenner, Chris Jenner, saying, you're doing great, sweetie, (laughs) to Kim. I was thinking, if you haven't seen the video of Kim, uh, Chris Jenner saying you're doing great, sweetie, just do yourself a favor and, and Google that. Very Danielle Staub. Also, I have worked in the adult film industry when I was researching uh, the adult film industry in my graduate program. And in the olden days, it was more common to allow people on set like that because in sort of like the golden age of the adult film industry where, you know, uh, folks like Jenna Jenna Jameson, is that her name? Mm-hmm. I think that's her name. Uh, Jenna Jameson was like making films with budgets equivalent to like Hollywood level productions you know, it was easier, it was kind of, they had more wiggle room for like mess ups and and reshoots and things like that. And now budgets are so tight uh, due to like internet piracy and the lack of sales for these companies that there is no way that they would let some random mom just hang out on set (laughs) in the middle of a shoot. (laughs) They go and interview one of the scene partners who has worked with Priscilla a couple of times She mentions randomly in a takeaway that she tested positive last month in this kind of throwaway comment, 
about how it's so weird that Priscilla ended up dead when she was the one who tested positive a couple weeks ago. And I would just like to take a moment to say that, uh, again, having spent a lot of time working with folks in the adult film industry, most of them have lower rates of STIs than the general population because they are getting tested so frequently. So she says that uh, Priscilla had told her that her mom didn't, or that uh, Priscilla didn't want to do it, but her mom was pushing her into it. And uh, Priscilla was so nervous, she was going to be doing this um, starring role in the next film. So I guess in the in the films prior to this, Priscilla had really only been sort of like doing softcore stuff, and she was about to do a, a hardcore film and was really nervous about it. And so her mom sent her to Angel, this woman they're talking to. Um, and Angel gave her some drugs for st- for stage fright. So she says that she'll testify that Priscilla was forced into uh, acting in adult film by her mother. And we cut to the mother's apartment where they arrest her for the murder of her daughter. So basically they're saying that her mother pressured Priscilla into all of this. They pressured her. She pressured her into starring role in this um, hardcore pornographic film. And that um, she even pushed her to take this medicine to calm her nerves, and that she kind of deliberately engaged in actions that caused her daughter's death. So they're arresting her for, like, second-degree murder, basically. The the district attorneys are now talking about how they're going to have a hard time proving that even if their mo- the mother was forcing Priscilla to do pornography— They have to prove that it was the cause of her death in order for this to be a valid case. So they go and talk to the shrink again and have this sort of like hypothetical conversation um, where, you know, they were like, have you ever had experience with a client who was like forced into this kind of life and did it, you know, impact her mental health? And he's like, yes, I have had a patient who hypothetically, uh, you know, has experienced this kind of mental anguish as a result of their parents forcing them into things that they didn't want to be doing. And so basically they're they're realizing that they're the crux of their case rests on the testimony and and files and records on this psychologist. So they're like, okay, we need these records, but the only person who can get access to them is the executor of the estate, which is the mother. She's not complying, especially because she's now a suspect in this case. So they do this thing where they basically try to get, they do like another court process while this is all happening to try to get somebody else appointed as the executor of the estate because the mom has like a a conflict of interest in this. And so they get the sister involved to be the administrator of the estate and the mom is pissed about this that was very clever that was very it was clever clever. yes they they make that all work we cut to the trial of the mother and um in in the trial her friend from the adult film studio the daughter priscilla's friend from the adult film studio says that priscilla was super nervous about the starring role that she didn't want to do it and that her mom had sent her to angel to get pills to calm her down but Angel also says that Priscilla's mom discouraged her from spending time with her because she knew Angel was taking drugs. So um, there's a little bit of like a kind of confusion there on whether the mom approved of Priscilla taking these drugs or not. But basically, we learn that the day that Priscilla died, the next day was when they were set to begin filming the film that she was, you know, in the starring role of. So The psychologist on the stand testifies that Priscilla's life was fully controlled by her mother. He says that 
Priscilla talked about how her mother had prized Priscilla's hair, and so Priscilla cut it all off as, like, a moment of control. And he also says that Priscilla, Priscilla had made a monologue video um, talking about uh, suicide, which she gave to her mother to try to, like, quote-unquote, change her mind. And they play the tape in court. And after a few conversations between the district attorney and the defense attorney for Priscilla's mother— they realize that this case is not going well for her, uh, but it's it's there's still some kind of like, you know, the case that the district attorney has isn't the strongest case. So they basically allow her to plea. And um, at first, her defense attorney says, OK, we'll have her plead a criminally negligent homicide. And Stone says, we'll go down as far as manslaughter, too, but only if she does the maximum sentence. And so she accepts the plea. She goes down for manslaughter, too, for her daughter's death. And Stone and Robinette have this closing conversation at the end of the episode where Stone says how it's kind of scary that an emotion like love can cause such damage. And that is the end of the episode, Aria. And I know the, I know the crime, and I am fascinated to hear your recounting of it. All right. So this case was inspired by... The death of Marilyn Monroe. I, my jaw dropped when I read that because I, it's so funny. So Matt and I had coffee last weekend. He was talking about how this was a really big case. And I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then when I saw that it was based on Marilyn Monroe, I was like, oh my God, that could be like its entire own podcast. For sure. It's just about Marilyn Monroe and her life. For sure. And there are many podcasts out there with, about Marilyn Monroe and, or episodes about the her death or things like that. So, I mean, the amount of research I could have done on this and the amount of time I could have spent on this, we we could have done our own, like, side Spin podcast. Off. We could just make a third <laughs> podcast. Maybe we will. It was very interesting. Maybe. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. So, my sources, of course, Wikipedia, the Law and Order Wiki. Um, I also used a website that I've had bookmarked for a really long time, which I'll tell you about after. It's going to be, like, kind of a wrap-up moment, but it's immortalmarilyn.com okay and then i read some articles so there was a daily mail article from around 2000 i believe it had a lot of dates on it like edits and stuff daily mail article around 2000 circa okay. 2000 <laughs> um there's two biography.com articles uh from 2019 one by jim ott one by sarah kettler a glamour article from 2012 by lindsay unterberger the VintageNews.com had an article from 2017. I didn't see it credited to anybody. Washington Post 2017 article by Elahi Izadi. Hmm, okay. A Vanity Fair's 2017 article from Joanna Robinson. And then I watched uh, three documentaries about it. It was, let's see, one was called The Marilyn Monroe Story from 1963. So it was not long after her death. Um, then there was the documentary Marilyn Monroe Declassified from 2016 and a documentary called Love Marilyn from 2012. Okay. Another big source of this was a friend of mine from back home. Um, I have a friend named Ernesto who is a big, big fan. Um, I don't even know what you would say. More than fan. Like very, very... Anyhow, as soon as I found out this was about Marilyn Monroe, I thought of him and I was like, I'm going to reach out to him to find out if he has any like good um, insider articles, knowledge. books, insider knowledge, things that I should include because another thing about Marilyn Monroe is there's a lot of misinformation everywhere, yes. all yes. over. So he gave me a lot of really cool information. I fact-checked everything to make sure I had a source for it, but he provided a lot of information that I then 
research that I'm going to include. Awesome. So that's really cool. Yeah. Big shout out to Ernesto. Um, I'll, I'll let you know some of the data that I got from him towards the end. Cause it's really interesting things I never even knew. Also, I just want to say for anybody out there who is listening to our podcast, you can really easy, easily figure out whether it's Matt or I that's going to cover a case because I cover the even number episodes and Matt covers the odd number episodes. And if you look ahead at cases that inspire the episodes and you happen to be somebody like Ernesto who knows a lot about a case that's coming up, feel free to send an email to rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com and say whether it's for Matt or me. And feel free to share information about that case if there's something coming up that you really want to make sure we know about. Yeah, and if you're unsure, if you don't want to do the 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 math, <laughs> the math, yes. odd and even, just say this is about episode blank. <laughs> And we'll figure it out. Yes. Yeah. And whoever, whichever one of us is assigned to that episode, we will reach out to you. Yeah. That's a great idea. All right. So I, there's a lot of information here. I tried to kind of go over a lot of her life and actual factual <laughs> information about her because I've always been a big fan of Marilyn Monroe in the way that she's like a Hollywood icon, Hollywood legend, yeah. like anybody else. But the only actual movie of hers I've seen is Some Like It Hot. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think that's the one I've seen too. And I liked it. I enjoyed it very much. But it's, it's, I, I don't know how the portrayal is anymore because I know it's, you know, men dressing up as women and trying to fool her and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I don't know how well it is, like, would be received today. But, yeah. um, yeah, I, I, let me say before I, before I researched, I would have, if you asked me about Marilyn Monroe, I would say she was probably like a, a really beautiful woman, um, mm-hmm. probably a, a okay actress maybe um kind of ditzy and you know right. there's a lot of like talk about her death and it's controversial and she said she became an icon because she was so beautiful you know that's probably what i would exactly. have said yes um i have a whole different perspective now oh that's awesome okay great yeah so i'm excited because i i my knowledge of marilyn monroe is pretty limited like i know mm-hmm. A little bit more, um, especially after listening to the Sinisterhood episodes about the JFK assassination, because mm. they touch a little bit on Marilyn Monroe in that, just a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, she just sort of became a cultural icon in part just because of her, like, bombshell looks. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that does a tremendous disservice to the complexity of her character and identity and her skills and all of that when it's just reduced down to her being really beautiful. Yeah, totally. So I would I would encourage people listening, if you have a view of Marilyn Monroe, look at this case before we get to her fame as though it was any other person that we were covering right. because it's it, it'll contextualize things for you, I think, a little bit more. Okay, great. All right, so... June 1st, 1926, Norma Jean Mortensen was born to 26-year-old Gladys Baker in Los Angeles. She doesn't have any father listed on the birth certificate. She lists who she believes is the father, which was one of her co-workers at the time. It's never been confirmed, but she's essentially a single mother. She... Can I... Yeah. Sorry, I have a clarifying question already. Gladys is... The mother? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. So Norma Jean Mortensen is Marilyn Monroe's uh, birth name. Birth name. Yes. Okay. She that's was named Norma Jean Mortensen. It was later changed to Baker. Baker was her husband. Okay. So Norma Jean Mortensen, later Baker, um, was born to her mother, Gladys Baker, in LA. Twelve days after she was born, um, her mother dropped her off at a foster home of Ida and Wayne Bolander. 
Um, it's wow. not, not okay. the first child she's had that she's done this to. I did not know that about Marilyn. Mm-hmm. 12 days, just dropped off at a, at a house and left behind. Wow. So okay. while her time in this house was, sta- was pretty stable, they were pretty stable parents. They were a foster home for a reason. Um, it wasn't a planned adoption process, and it wasn't without its share of trauma. When Norma is three years old, Gladys returns to this home and attempts to abduct her in a duffel bag. Oh my god! Mm -hmm. Um, The incident was thwarted by Ida, the mother, who was able to stop this, but there's, you know, nothing is done about it. Because... Wow. Yeah, they evidently, they knew that Gladys was not well. Okay. Despite this incident, when... Norma is about seven years old. She's returned to her biological mother's care. Okay. She's old enough now. In the same year that they return her to her care, which is 1933, Gladys founds out that her father, which is Marilyn's grandfather, had died by suicide. And mm. she also finds out that another child that she had had, who she who had been taken away also, dies from kidney failure that year. God. She reportedly, you know, scolds Marilyn and says, why couldn't it have been you? Oh, no. Yeah. So little Norma Jean slash Marilyn. By the way, I've, I've written her as Norma mostly until she changes her name. So just use the okay. names interchangeably. By mid-1934, the following year, Norma Jean witnesses several psychotic episodes, you know, of her mother. And by mid-1934, her mother is institutionalized and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Norma then becomes a ward of the state. And her mom's friend, Grace Goddard, and her husband take her in, and they just, they're put in charge of her mother's affairs. Okay. And how old is she at this point? She's, I believe, eight. Maybe okay. eight and a half. So Grace and her husband, whose um, nickname was Doc, I didn't write down his, his real name because that's what everything refers to him as anyway. So Grace and her husband, Doc, they tried giving Marilyn or Norma back to the orphanage in 1936 because they had gotten her, you know, after... Her mother's put away, but they didn't necessarily want to keep her. So they tried okay. to put her in an orphanage in 1936. But the orphanage highly recommended after a very short time that she would probably thrive more with a family at this point. They don't take her back for almost a full year, though, after this decision is made. So they take her back in 1937. This stay lasts only a few months before Doc sexually abuses Norma Jean. Ugh. Huck, okay. Uh, Marilyn, in her own words, will later write of this, and she says, I will not be punished for it, or be whipped, or be threatened, or not be loved, or sent to hell to burn. And I thought that this shows, like, incredible clarity and emotional depth and awareness for someone who went through this in the early times of her traumatic life, and then writes this in, like, the 50s or 60s. Well, yeah, I'm just going to say, like, in that period, there was, I feel like the conversation around sexual abuse was much less sensitive toward the survivor of that abuse. And so for her to say that, that, like, for anybody out there who is a survivor of abuse, I just want to say to you that you are in no way responsible for what was done to you. That is a message, that sounds like her message there, and I think that's a pretty remarkable thing to say and disclose anytime but especially 70 years ago at this point 60 70 years ago um and to have that stance right like to even talk about it and to say like this is not my shit don't put it on me is pretty impressive yeah and there's a lot a lot of writings of marilyn monroe that have been found and 
that have been documented. One of the documentaries I, I watched is literally most mostly her words. And yeah, she has a lot of really profound things like that said very simply, but really mm-hmm. profound and very brave. We'll, we'll get into more of that too. So she went back to the home in 1937. This is when the abuse happened. And she leaves. She, she goes to a few more foster homes. But by 1941, she moves back in with the Goddards again. At this point, she's, I think, 15, 15 years old. Um, she moves back because she's going to school in Van Nuys, California, and that's where they live. So she okay. moves back in with them. Within a year, I, this girl cannot get a break. This no. is all happening really quickly, too. Doc gets a transfer from California to West Virginia, West Virginia for work. Child protection laws, not because of the abuse, just because of her age. Mm-hmm. They won't allow her to go with them. Since this would require her to go back to an orphanage and she's 15 years old, they think she's too old for this. So Grace speaks to her neighbors that she's good friends with. And they come up with an agreement that she should marry uh, Norma to their son, who's 21 years old, named James Doherty. Doherty. Okay. So that she could stay out of the system. I guess I was about to say, is that even legal? But I feel like, isn't there something about, like, with parents' consent, you can get married under the, like, legal age of adulthood? Well, they wait until... Marilyn's turning 16 soon, so they wait until she turns 16. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know if that makes a difference in that way, but that's that's their plan. I don't like this. Well, <laughs> they, they all agree to it, um, including Marilyn and James. She's marrying the son of the man who sexually abused her. No, no, right. no, no. Marrying the son oh. of the neighbor. The neighbor. Got it. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. Unrelated. Yes. So that's kind of like the fast track on her childhood. She gets engaged to him right away, and she's able to stay with him when Doc and Gloria move. And they're basically out of the picture for the rest of the story. Okay. One thing that I'll note about some of the things, about some of the articles and resources I've read that I didn't include here was there's a lot of talk about her mother's battle with mental illness and Mm -hmm. what a huge toll that took on Marilyn, not only throughout her childhood when she was witnessing it and in the years when she didn't have her mother around, but her mother was still in contact with her. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that, there's a lot of things written about her own fear about her own mental illness because of this. Yeah. So she always feared one of her biggest fears was turning out like her mother. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really common. I think that's really understandable. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally understandable. So in 1944, her and James Doherty get married and he's a merchant Marine who is shipped out in April, two years after that. So they have a very short time living together, but it's, it's happy. They seem mm-hmm. amicable mm-hmm. Um, I guess as best as an arranged marriage could be, which weren't wildly uncommon either. They're they're living a pretty happy life. So when he goes off to war, she decides to get a job and she lives with her in-laws instead. So she's living with her neighbors, essentially, okay. and she's working at a munitions factory. While working here, a photographer who was sent out to take these morale-boosting sort of shots to promote the war and like getting a job, mm-hmm. to pro- all that kind of stuff, he is there at the factory and he photographs her. And while they didn't use her for any of the, you know, promotional stuff they were going to, they were going to do, they were very enamored with her and they tell her, you know, you could be a model. So this is where she's discovered. Okay. The earliest shots of her are, it's just so cool to see these really early shots of her because they are available even though they weren't used. And she's just. I'm literally looking at it right now. She's like attaching a propeller to the front of something. Yeah. And it's just this like light in her eyes. She's just. Yeah beaming you know despite whatever life she's she's had after this she decides she wants to try to try to do it she wants to be a model so she starts 
going to agents. She starts going on calls. She starts getting pictures taken of her. She starts developing relationships with photographers. And then she realizes that what she really wants to do is to break into acting. But she's having little success at first. You know, not surprising. Mm. Yeah. She ends up getting herself a screen test at Paramount. This is back when the studio system was, you know, the big thing. So you had to, you know, sign on with a studio to get pictures made. Right. So she gets a screen test at Paramount, but they pass on her. And then Ben Lyon at 20th Century Fox, he decides to take a chance on her. He's not wildly impressed with her screen test. Okay. But he doesn't want anyone else to get her. It's here that she adapts the stage name of Marilyn Monroe. Okay. Uh, Marilyn is suggested by Lyons based on Marilyn Miller, who was a successful Broadway star that she sort of reminded him of. And then he suggested a last name. I forget what it was, but she asked if she could use Monroe because it was her mother's maiden name. So that's how she becomes Marilyn Monroe. So she gets cast in some small parts because of this, and she begins taking acting classes. But by 1947, her contract with 20th Century Fox was up. And they decided not to renew it. So she she had a very short contract with them. I think it was a year and a half maximum. Okay. So, you know, the next year in March 1968, she actually lands herself a contract with Columbia. And while she's here, she begins studying acting under a a coach, Natasha Lites, who she remains under her care or her coaching for seven years. Okay. It's relevant because she brings her to like everything with her. That's so nice. Yeah. Well... She thinks it's nice. I mean, (laughs) I guess I don't know the rest of the story, so maybe it's not. (laughs) Well, she thinks it's nice, and Natasha is all for it, but um, directors aren't aren't wild about it. Okay. So there are claims that Natasha becomes obsessed with Marilyn in working with her slowly over time, and it starts to wear on their relationship, and it eventually forces Marilyn to telegram her in 1956 and let her know that she'd no longer need her services. While at Columbia Studios, she makes a couple of films, um, so it's better than 20th Century Fox, but they they don't end up doing too well, and so her contract ends in 1948, and they don't renew it. So she's trying. She's really trying. She gets herself screen tests. There's a lot said about how she gets herself screen tests. There's a lot of um, allegations and a lot of true information about her, you know, going on dates with producers, sleeping with men to get roles, but this was... A big casting couch, like pinnacle yes this was beyond casting couch like this was the way you got roles period it seems like yeah she talks about it a little bit in some of her writings and some people have mused on it you know where she wasn't exactly shy about it because Mm -hmm. in the studio system because nobody was terrible terrible but uh 1949 the next year after being dropped from columbia pictures Monroe began modeling again, and she gets signed with a talent scout, Johnny Hyde, who's able to get her cast in a couple of films, even though she's not with the studio. So she gets to uh, film Asphalt Jungle, which I'd never heard of, but apparently was a big film back in the day. And she's also in All About Eve, which I've definitely heard of. I mean, I think that's Catherine Mm -hmm. Hepburn. Yeah, I think so. And she gets cast in small parts in each one, small speaking roles, but each one were huge movie hits, hits, huge box office successes, and despite having small roles in each, she's so captivating in these roles that she's received very positive reviews. Because of this, she's able to negotiate a seven-year deal with 20th Century Fox, who did not renew her in the past, remember? Seven years, wow. Yeah, but there's a stipulation in the deal. So in this contract, after every year, they have the option to drop her from the contract. Okay. So on a, like she's on a yearly basis. So this basically puts her in a position where she has to essentially prove herself 
and yeah, prove her say. worth and value annually to retain her career. Right, 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 right. So it's not great, but you know, so this it's, is... you have you have seven years of obligation to us. We do not have seven years of obligation to you. You're welcome. <laughs> all, by by the way, all about Eve was Betty Davis. Oh, Betty Davis. Thank you, thank you. She she takes the deal though. It's the best thing she's got, and she she films a few roles. She stars in As Young as You Feel and Love Nest, and her popularity starts to go on the rise because of this. Also. In 1951, because of all the modeling she's doing at the same time, and because it's like, you know, the time, it's the 50s, she does a lot of pin-up shots. Mm -hmm. And because of this, she earns the title of Miss Cheesecake 51. Okay. Did you know about this use of the word cheesecake? No. Okay. I'm wondering if in the queer culture, like, drag world, if this is where we're getting cheesecake from. Are you thinking about Dita Ritz on season four of RuPaul's Drag Race? Cheesecake? Yes. I was, I have always wondered where that came from. And so I'm thinking maybe it is this. Yes, because I looked it up a little deeper when I read this phrase. And apparently the words pinup were looked at as very like filthy for a long time. Oh, okay. So they called them uh, cheesecake models. Okay. And the alternative for male was beefcake. Oh, okay. So beefcake lasted and cheesecake did not. How funny. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, yeah, so she won Miss Cheesecake uh, in 1951, and she was also called a Cheesecake Queen um, throughout this time in the newspapers. So weird, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay, so during this time is when she starts to be connected to several prominent men, including Peter Lawford, who was the Attorney General um, Robert Kennedy's brother-in-law. Okay. Robert Kennedy himself, of course. Uh, President John F. Kennedy. And in 1951, she starts dating very publicly Joe DiMaggio. Oh, all right. And they have a really public romance. Obviously, he's this huge baseball star that's renowned and loved. And she's this blonde bombshell that's on the rise. Mm -hmm. Okay, so things are going well. She's doing some film. She's getting good press. She's got a good relationship. And good relationships are very important for big stars back then. Um, I'll go Mm -hmm. into that a little bit, too. But this same year, in March, photos of her posing nude for a calendar from 1949 surface. Mm -hmm. And the studio learns about them. And they're really upset and pissed. So... Such a double standard. Mm -hmm. Only we're allowed to abuse you and exploit your sexuality. Exactly. So everyone wants her to deny them. They are real. Everyone wants to deny them. Um, This is what she signed off as Mona Monroe when she took them back in the day. Ah, Okay. Um, she, she's encouraged to tell everyone that they're fakes, that there's someone that just sort of looks like you. It's back in the day. There's not, you know, there's no internet. (laughs) No one's going to really be able to prove it. Um, right. But she doesn't want to do that. She's very against that. And she thinks I took these pictures. So I, I don't care. I'll just say I did them. Um, I'll be honest. I'll tell the truth. So she tells the truth on many interviews and she says that she did take the picture it was 1949. She needed the money. She was several months behind on rent. The photographer was someone she had worked with before because she was doing modeling. And she had run into him and she said, do you have any work? I really need work. I'm, I need work. And he said, I'm doing a, do you do nudes? And he was, she was like, no. And he's like, okay, well, I'm doing nudes for like a calendar for, I think it was for like PBR actually, like Paps Blue Ribbon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, I need, I need more models because I had some drop out. And she's like, <sighs> she's like, okay, do you, are you sure no one will see me? Are you sure I won't be recognized? Okay. She's very low key. And he says 
that they'll be tasteful and you know we'll 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 do it the right way we'll do anything you need and they're friendly so she agrees to do it as long as he promises that his wife will be present at the shoot which is a very mm-hmm. smart thing for a girl yeah like this yeah incredible so she says that's what happened they took the pictures and i'm not ashamed basically mm-hmm. you know it was a time when i finally needed the money and they're not i'm not doing anything sexual in them the the studio isn't happy with this but it's this admission and like innocence and all this it actually launches her into further stardom it doesn't ruin her career like they thought it would mm-hmm. although most of her roles which are already skewed towards dumb blonde and like sexy are like yep. increasingly towards the sex pot role because this is who she is now yeah so during these sort of like breakthrough years she'd been bullied by directors who became irritated with her because they said she was a perfectionist she wanted to take multiple retakes reshoots if she wasn't satisfied um she had a lot of ideas about the roles she was playing and the way they were being portrayed and she always wanted to have her acting coach on hand on set and i'm sure all the men were like will you they were probably so frustrated by a woman talking and displaying agency using your mouth for for words absolutely not so but i mean good for her like that yes everything you've described so far is she's a sharp cookie who is displaying a lot of agency at a time and in a field that really did not facilitate that happening a hundred percent and she really one thing that i really didn't know because one thing that's told about her all the time when you read things about her or look look at a, a meme or something it's all about her just being this sad character who just wanted love and would do anything right. for love she really, really wanted to be an actress. Like, she yeah. was so incredibly passionate. She read books about acting. When you look at her notes and all of her um, things that she just wrote, like her diaries and her to-do lists, it's like hours of practicing, like, method acting. She really wants to do well. Wow. And people really, if you look back, even though the media was pushing her as this blonde bombshell, her her reviews were pretty good when she was in a good mm-hmm. film. And she's yeah. been compared to really great actors, and a lot of producers, after working with her, have had great things to say about her. Not all of them, nice. but the people yeah. who say bad things about her are saying things like she's hard to work with, which is the <laughs> because classic she like line. actually takes her craft seriously and wants it to be right. Right, and who I'm sure she probably had her days. You know, anybody would, mm-hmm. but I don't. It's not at all what i thought um there's also reports of her during this time starting to use barbiturates or amphetamines to sort of alleviate this incredible anxiety she was having and she started to suffer suffer from insomnia as well Mm -hmm. despite all of this in 1953 she starred in a film called niagara where she played a femme fatale character which was very different from her something she really wanted to do and this garnered her really great reviews. It's one of her most popular films. And it gave her a photo play award where she wears this iconic, like, gold lame dress. Mm-hmm. When she goes to this event, Joan Crawford, among other Hollywood stars, say very nasty things about her. Um, Joan Crawford says it's unbecoming of, a, of an actress and a lady to be, like, dressed so lewdly at an event like this. Um, you know, she gets a lot of hate. Yeah. One interesting thing I found out from Ernesto that I, I had to look it up to, to see if it was true because it's such a cool thing. Um, you know John Crawford, right? Like the mommy dearest and all that. Yes. So yes. when she puts the statement out in the press, like Monroe responds and rather than like 
getting into like a catty sort of argument at that time, she just says, you know, oh, I'm so surprised she would have said something negative about me because she's such a gifted actress. Um, she's so talented. I'm so inspired by her. And she makes some kind of comment to say like, and to see like such a lovely mother have time for her kids and to be so generous with her children and also be an actress, I think it's so inspiring. And a lot of people think it's because everybody knew the rumors of how Joan Crawford actually treated her children at the time. Oh. <laughs> which we now know through Mommy Dearest, written by Joan Crawford's daughter. Yeah. So just an interesting fact that <laughs> Marilyn Monroe was no dummy. She really no. was savvy, and she knew how to she knew how to say the right thing to not get her fired necessarily or panned in the right. press, but still get her point across. Well, and it's one of those things too when you when you are telling the story, it just reminds me so much about like the whole framing Britney thing and mm-hmm. and the way that like Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears and, you know, Jessica Simpson are all like pitted against each other. And the questions are about like, what do you think about them? And and like men are never asked those types of questions about their like male counterparts in the industry. So it's, it's, I'm sure that um, Joan Crawford also was probably like a- asked specifically to comment on Marilyn Monroe. Sure. And I also you know? think that if you've seen Mommy Dearest or anything on Joan Crawford or old Hollywood, I guess this isn't really restricted to Hollywood, even though I wish it was restricted to something. But in all fields, I feel like men have historically pitted women against each other. Yeah. You know? And it's like Hollywood is a prime example where you could just see it play out still today. Um, Yep. But, you know, women in that time, they got in the business and they were lucky if they did and they had to do things that they probably didn't want to do to get in. And then to stay in, they had to stay young looking, they had to stay marketable, they had to stay better than the next one that was thin, coming, yeah. thin, you know, like married to the right person in relation, oh, yeah. in the press for the right reasons. Like, that's a lot of pressure. Not to say oh, totally. that Joan Crawford was a saint, but I imagine <laughs> sitting there and watching Marilyn Monroe go up there, it probably, you know, right. I get it. Yep. So... Uh, the next film, big film she's in is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1953, mm-hmm. which is where the classic Diamonds Are Girls Best Friend number we all know is from. She gets... Which, by the way, uh, there's a version of that song that is amazing. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember who like covers it, but it's like a swing band who does kind of, or like, yeah, like a swing band who does kind of like a, a big band, lots of trumpets. Um remix of it uh-huh. that's really really good is and really it, fun to listen to is it postmodern jukebox no it's oh. it's actually Marilyn singing oh but it's it's a, they like kind of remix the track with their uh backing instruments oh fun highly recommend okay. go and give that a listen i'll put that in the show notes yeah <laughs> so in the same year she stars in how to marry a millionaire these roles made her basically one of the top 10 money-making stars of the year. I think she's in a, like a poll or something in a magazine that year. So she's getting a lot more press. And in December of 1953, Hugh Hefner launched Playboy magazine with an image from her on the cover. The image that he used for the cover is from when Marilyn was invited to the Miss America, Miss America pageant to like host okay. or present or something. And the centerfold shots are the pictures that Marilyn had taken for that calendar in 1949, because there were several shots. So all of this was, like, without her approval, basically? Correct. Because Marilyn signed over the rights to the photos to the original photographer who made the calendar. Yeah. She got paid, I believe, $50 for that. Hugh Hefner (laughs) bought the rights to those photos from the the 
the photographer for $500. And he credits Marilyn Monroe on the entire success of Playboy. <laughs> he says, if I had not had those photos, I would not be sitting here today. I would not have anything. If I hadn't been able to exploit mm-hmm. a tremendously successful star with photos that she did not would be did not know would be used in this way, I wouldn't be successful. Just rewrite that headline for you, Hugh. Exactly. And I feel like I don't I didn't find any quotes from her about how she felt about that, but I did find quotes that she had written down about how she felt about um the nude photos coming out in the first place. And while she wasn't ashamed of them, she didn't ever think they would come out like that. And it was embarrassing for her. And she didn't consent to it because, and that's why she had used the name Mona when she signed off on it, because she didn't think anything would ever come of it. Right. So I can't imagine she was thrilled about this. But Hugh Hefner is a huge fan. He puts all of his clout on, you know, getting her in the magazine and helping him out. He, I don't know if you know this, he bought the, I don't know if you call it a plot of Kids in a Mausoleum and Not in the Ground. Oh, uh, I don't know. Okay, so that thing. I think it's called a plot. But he bought the plot directly next to Marilyn Monroe's. So what? he's buried forever next to Marilyn Monroe, Hugh Hefner. Okay. It's a little I strange. I feel kind of gross about that. That's that's weird. Yeah. That's really weird to me. And at first I thought, wow, like, I think that's great that he credits her. But then I was reading more. She never received a dime. Right, of course. $50. She got that 50 bucks. Yeah. So, Okay. <sighs> Anywho, so moving, f- so that's her, you know, that's 1953. This is really credited as the year that made Marilyn Monroe, is 1953. Okay. So 20th Century Fox in 1954, they suspend her from any series films going forward because she's refusing to be in musicals anymore. She wants to do more serious work. She wants to have some control over the character she's playing, and they want to put her in a movie called The Girl in Pink Tights, and she refuses and so they ban her from doing any serious films. <sighs> mm-hmm. So it became public, and it's in the newspapers, and it's painting her as a difficult person to work with. So she gets herself booked on a USO tour, and she does this four-day-long um, performance of shows, and it's covered in the media at the same time, and it effectively overrides all this negative publicity. This stunt secures her a new contract with 20th Century Fox. So in the new contract, there's more money. She also gets a bonus, and she gets a starring role in a film called The Seven Year Itch. Mm -hmm. So they begin shooting the film in 1954, and while they're doing it, they know there's going to be a scene in it that's going to be, suppose that they want to be sensational. And so they stage a publicity uh, event where they're supposedly filming the scene, even though I believe they're going to film it for the movie separately. Mm-hmm. And it's that iconic scene of her standing over the su- subway grate with the dress blowing up. Yes. And they don't think it's going to be as big as it turns out to be. It's supposed to be sort of a short event. She takes a bunch of pictures, they get it in the paper, and it's done. Uh, Joe DiMaggio goes. He's not thrilled about it when it starts because it's blowing her dress up more than he expected. He's watching his wife be ogled by what turns out to be over 2,000 people eventually Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on the streets in the night while they're shooting this. It's cold, and they notice that, and Marilyn even writes in her journal that she could see the photographers closing up on her vagina and trying to get (laughs) shots of her. Even though she's wearing underwear, this is like the focus. It goes on for a very long time. Everybody who's there notes that Joe DiMaggio is getting more and more upset and more and more angry at this. He doesn't want it to go on, but everyone from the from the studio is like, this is what we're doing. Get out of here, basically, if you don't like it. So he leaves. 
And this event is what is cited as what ends their nine-month-long marriage. Mm. Um, there are allegations of physical abuse by him after this against Marilyn. Ooh. I don't know if they're true, but they're in a lot of things. Um, and there's one person who knows him in an interview, and she says she knows him, she knew him very well and loved him, so she won't say anything bad about him um, about that, which basically says that it's true in my mind. Yeah. Um, the, the only plus side to that is I could say anyone who knew them and knew Marilyn says that this was probably her only marriage that she had. That was a true reciprocal, like loving relationship before that. Like they actually got married because they loved each other and liked each other, not because they were told to. Right. Um, so it's a real shame that all of this went down the way it did. And I, you know, I can't blame the event on what Joe did because if you have that in you, you know, it it's going to come out in some way. Um, right. But, you know, it's, 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 it's very sad. Everybody basically says that Joe eventually wanted a really simple life. He wanted to settle down. He wanted to be out of the limelight and have his, like, wife at home with him. And that's what he thought was going to be the future. But this was not Marilyn's dreams. And they didn't coincide with one another. And after they shoot the movie, or during shooting of the movie, they divorce. And despite this, her and Joe DiMaggio still continue uh, a relationship afterwards. She moves to New York after the movie comes out. It's a huge, huge hit. It was insane. So she gets a little bit of freedom after this. Yeah. Well, just think about like that skirt subway thing, the amount of times that that has shown up in other media. Like I, it's been in The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. It's like it's been Everywhere. on a hundred million things after that moment. Yeah. And I read that that dress... Um, sold for $5.52 million. Holy shit. It is, at the time of the documentary I saw that in, it was the most, um, the highest priced, like, celebrity item ever sold. You know what's funny is now that you say that, I feel like when the movie theaters used to play the, like, Sotheby's auction house Mm -hmm. um, things before before the movie started, I feel like that and the red slippers from The Wizard of Oz were, like, two of the most highly valued like objects you know what now that you mentioned that i do remember that right because last time we did an episode you were like do you remember those commercials in the movie theater and i didn't remember <laughs> and then when i was listening back editing the episode i was like i kind of do remember this i think and then now sometimes you're saying i feel that. like i'm like i'm dory from <laughs> finding finding nemo or finding dory where i'm like those movie theater things you're like yeah we talked about that last episode <laughs> no it's good it's your recovering memories <laughs> thank you <laughs> Okay, so she moves to New York after this, and she opens up her own studio. She starts Marilyn Monroe Productions, MMP is what I'll be calling it. She does this because she's tired of the same old sex roles, in her words. And she says she wants to contribute to making great films. So 20th Century Fox began after she opens up Marilyn Monroe Productions. They're not, they're not happy. So they start this... I'm sure not. Yeah. yeah. So they start this legal battle with her. This move on her part is of opening MMP is credited as what was the beginning of the end of the studio system. So Mm. the collapse of the studio system, this is Marilyn Monroe's contribution by making her own independent studio and the battle that ensues. The, the legal battle goes on, but she doesn't care. She begins trying to refine her skill further because as much as people say again, that all she wanted to do was be loved. She really wanted to be a respected actress and she has the opportunity to enroll and is accepted into the legendary actress studio in New York City. Hmm. And she studies under Lee Strasberg and eventually his wife, Paula. She was not popular there. Um, people knew who she was. 
And these are serious actors who've been in acting school for many, many years and are now going to the actor studio to refine their craft. They're studying things like method acting. And Mm -hmm. in walks Marilyn Monroe, who is not the most well-respected actress for her craft by these people. She tries to keep a low profile, but, you know, she's noticed. Um, However, she does eventually earn most of their respect, and she continues working with Paula far after um, her classes at the acting studio are over. Paula is actually the person who replaces her old acting coach when she drops her. Okay. So Paula starts to become the new acting coach that's on set with her all the time, Paula Strasberg. Gotcha. That's kind of, I wonder how often that happens where a famous actor will bring their coach on to kind of like give them feedback on things other than, like I imagine directors might find that kind of irritating. Sure. I mean, especially if the acting (laughs) coach is doing things that are, counterproductive to the character that they've written performance you, know? you want yeah. yeah but um 1955 she starts dating arthur miller the playwright hmm. and while the studio urges her to end this relationship because he's currently at that time under investigation for communism with the whole mccarthy of course yeah um she refuses to to not be with him and their relationships their relationship goes public by the end of the year, she's able to secure a new seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox after this battle, and she's finally being paid similarly, similarly to her colleagues, has a voice in her own projects, and she has a choice of her own directors, and they agree to let her film one Marilyn Monroe Pictures um, film every year on Fox's mm-hmm. budget. So she finally gets a good contract, which she's been trying for a long time, and I mentioned that she's making the same as her colleagues. I don't mean her male colleagues. I mean her female colleagues because they are getting paid like 10 times as much of her as her for everything up until now, even Mm -hmm. though she's been in these huge blockbuster movies. Around this time, 1956, she starts to make more films that she's proud of and she has a say in things. So she starts in this movie called Bus Stop, which draws her comparisons to Charlie Chaplin's ability to blend comedy and tragedy together. Mm -hmm. This also garnered her her first Golden Globe for Best Actress. And shortly afterwards, she converts to Judaism and marries Arthur Miller. Wow. Okay. She stands by him throughout the trials. This is something else I learned. I had no idea about. Um, Mm -hmm. But she totally stands by him through the trials. She's put on the FBI's person of interest list as well. She's questioned, but she adamantly protects her communist husband because he's 100% a communist. Mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. Um, And she knows it. When she marries Arthur Miller, the headlines are things like Egghead Mar- marries Hourglass. Um, <laughs> she's completely, they're like a mismatch in people's minds, but she seems really happy. She seems in love. And she begins yeah. shooting The Prince and the Showgirl under Marilyn Monroe Productions. And she chooses Laurence Olivier to be the co-star and also director. He, however, has zero respect for her. <laughs> um, and he hated that her coach was on set from the jump. And he told her, listen, quote, all you have to do is be sexy. From this moment on, Marilyn Monroe was disillusioned with him and reportedly would show up late to set on purpose just to piss him off. Mm-hmm. The production was riddled with issues between the two, but they complete filming. And while it wasn't a success in the U.S. market, it's a huge success over in Europe. And she wins several Italian awards. She decides to take a year off after this and focus on her family. Uh, It seems that she wants to have a child, and she had already reportedly miscarried at least once during the filming of the the um, the Showgirl and the Prince. Okay, it's she's had about four or five miscarriages 
reportedly, but I've only been able to find proof of one. Okay. Um, but it's something that she struggled with, and it leads her to finding out that she has endometriosis. Okay. After her time away, she decides to come back to film again, and she films Some Like It Hot, a role that she was, again, playing a dumb blonde again, but she was urged to do it by her husband and by the studio. They think it's going to be a big hit. Billy Wilder has many issues with her um, on set. He's the producer. Mm-hmm. Her His main issues with her is that she keeps wanting to do retakes, and she has a lot of disagreements about the character's portrayal, which is not surprising because this isn't the type of character she wants to play anymore. Right. But um, despite any kind of disagreements on the set and the retakes that happened, the film is a huge success. Um, the critics love it, and they change their original tune about her and they they give her great reviews and essentially like the producer turns changes his tune and says that she was like a genius essentially so in 1960 truman capote decides he wants to make the movie breakfast at tiffany's and he Mm -hmm. is lobbying to get marilyn monroe as the lead part the producers feel though she'd be way too complicated on set because of her reputation and so that's how the role eventually goes to audrey hepburn instead Wow. I didn't know that at all. I didn't know that, yeah. The last movie, Marilyn Monroe... Marilyn Monroe. I, I feel like I keep saying Marilyn, Marilyn, Marilyn Rowe. <laughs> <laughs> the last movie that Marilyn would make, um, she began filming in 1960, and it was written by her husband, Arthur Miller. It was incredibly unkind to, Mar- to Marilyn Monroe. He names the character partially after her. Like, he alters her name to be spelled more like Marilyn's. I think it's like Jocelyn, but he changes it to be L-Y-N to make it more uh-huh. personal to her. And many of the things in the movie that her husband wrote mirror things that are challenging in her life. Challenging childhood, uh, issues with being objectified. Like, a lot of things were in it that was mirroring her actual life at the time. And she was mm-hmm. reportedly having a really hard time filming it. And this is something else that Ernesto told me about. As a child, Marilyn Monroe never knew who her father was, and her mother had given her multiple stories. Right. One of them was that her father was Clark Gable. Hmm. It was something that was suggested to her. Marilyn had asked her mother, and her mother refused to to confirm or deny, and just kept planting seeds that it was true, until Hmm. Marilyn believed for a time as a child that her mother, that her father was Clark Gable. Okay. The romantic lead cast opposite her in this movie is Clark Gable. Okay. A man she once believed to be her father. Um, Something Arthur Miller must have known. So, it's a very challenging um, set for her to be on. The movie's called The Misfits. Miller reportedly would rewrite scenes the night before, and it would challenge her the next day. Um, She was panned by him, by her husband, for being a bad actress, he wrote really despicable notes about her, um, reviewing her performances, and left them out for her to see. Uh, she struggled with her studio over the next year. They disagreed with all of her decisions. Like, it was a really terrible, terrible time for her. So after all of this, she um, divorces Arthur Miller, I think about a year, within the year of the film being made. And she makes a lot of decisions that her studio disagrees with. She's doing things that she wants to do. She poses nude in Life magazine to promote the movie Something Has Gotta Give. She does the famous singing of Happy Birthday, Mr. President on air, mm-hmm. um, something that she was late to. And ironically, when <laughs> she comes out, they say the late Marilyn Monroe. And then Ooh. not too long after is when she meets her end. So it's like a very chilling moment. 
So on the morning of August 5th, 1962, Eunice Murray, her housekeeper, finds Monroe's door locked around 3 a.m., she says. She can't get in, and she's unresponsive when she's knocking on the door, so she calls her psychiatrist, Ralph Greenson. He comes, and he arrives within the hour. He pronounces her dead on the scene when they get in, and they notify the LAPD at 4.25 in the morning. She calls him to get there at 3 in the morning. He arrives at 3.50 a.m. and pronounces her dead, the psychiatrist, and they call the LAPD at 4.25. So she called at 3 a.m. She called her psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. At 3.50, he shows up. Mm-hmm. And at 4 o'clock? 4.25. 4.25, LAPD announces that she's dead. No, no, no. At 4.25, they they call LAPD. Got it. Okay. They don't even tell them until 4.25. Uh, so okay. from the, let's see, this is, I think, a quote from probably Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So it says, Monroe died between 8.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. on August 4th, which is the night before. And the toxicology report showed that the cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning. She had 8 milligrams chloral hydrate and 4.5 milligrams of pentobarbital, um, which is the official name for the drug Nembutal, in her Mm. blood, and 13 milligrams of pentobarbital in her liver. Empty medicine bottles Mm. were found next to her bed. The possibility that Monroe had accidentally overdosed was ruled out because the dosages found in her body were several times over the lethal limit. Based Mm. on the conclusion that she was, quote, prone to severe fears and frequent depressions and, quote, with abrupt and unpredictable mood changes, they ruled it as, quote, probable suicide. The coroner said he's done like 1,600 um, autopsies or reports. He's never Mm -hmm. seen the word probable be put before suicide on an official document. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Many books, um, mainly Norman Mailer's Marilyn, a biography from 1973, introduced evidence contradicting the narrative that this was a suicide. Um, and that's really when the controversies and the conspiracy theories started to come up. So mm-hmm. let's go into some of these. Um... So, okay. So before we get into the theories, the like official st- statement out there is that she died of an accidental drug overdose. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's deemed probable suicide. Probable. Probable suicide still to this day. Which makes me wonder if that is based on any of the other extenuating circumstances. Like, you know, wouldn't you think it would just be accidental overdose unless they had indications that it was intentional? The only reason they said it wasn't accidental is because of the dosage, because it was so high. Um, and because of those things, like she had mood changes, there was also, um, allegations that she had had a barbiturate overdose in the past. Mm, Okay. So here's some things that kind of go against the idea that this was a suicide. The deputy DA of LA in 1962 says that there were no crystals of the drugs found in her system and no evidence of any undissolved capsules of Nembutal. Okay. Based on the amount of drugs she took, all the experts say there is no way there would not be undissolved capsules in her system because the dosage she took was so high that before they even passed through her system, she should have been completely out of it. Would that then indicate like intravenous? Perhaps. They're, they're wondering- Introduction of those drugs? Exactly. Okay. The question is like, how were these in her system then? Okay. So Jack Clemens, the sergeant of the LAPD, who was the first on the scene, he said that the housekeeper, when he got there, was doing laundry from the crime scene um, before they knew what was going on. 
And there's a lot of conspiracy theories that say that Eunice was placed as a housekeeper in that house by someone who was, you know, sort of spying on her. Oh, and, okay. And you know, was kind of cleaning up the crime scene. Okay. That's That's all I found out about that part of it, though. But there's more about her. Greenson, that's her psychiatrist, who was at the scene first, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was acting funny, says Jack Clemens, the sergeant of the LAPD, when they got there. And he says that they asked him why did they not report the death until five hours after she died and, you know, at least an hour after the till they found her. Yeah. And they said it was because they were checking with the publicity department. Okay. Okay. There was no vomit on the crime scene, which is common with someone who overdoses. The That you would have vomit. Correct. Yeah, because so, your body kind of like does some natural things to try to expel toxins. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there was no vomit at the crime scene. The scene looked staged. Um, the pill bottles mm. that she used purportedly had the caps put back on and they were neatly placed to the side of the bed. The capsules that she reportedly took have a yellow dye in them and there are no okay. dye stains inside of her. Hmm. The lower portion of her colon was deep purple, and that okay. would be consistent if there was the use of an enema that would have okay. dispensed this into her system. That would okay. legit, that would that would be a correct conclusion you could draw from that. Lionel G. He's the deputy coroner's aide in L.A. in 1962. He's the one who signs her death, death certificate. He says he's sure that there's evidence of a cover-up here. Because he was told to just sign their certificate without having all of the affiliated supplemental documents on file, which is something that he's never been asked to do prior and never been asked to do since. Okay. Now, this is where the the theory of, like, what is the motivation and who was involved comes in. Right. And this is, for me, okay, I hope I'm not, like, very gullible, but the documentary Marilyn Monroe Declassified, I would highly uh-huh. recommend watching it. It's full okay. of a ton of really inf- good information. Um interviews with some people who could be a little bit like like one of the people they interview is a marilyn Marilyn monroe impersonator i don't think she has a lot of (laughs) insight but a lot of the interviews are like lapd people on the scene um psychiatrists court interviews things like that so it's got a lot of really great information but i will say the production of it it's it's rough okay i almost was watching it when i first started it i was like oh should i watch this it's very like <laughs> a move, a documentary that feels like it was made on YouTube. Makes sense. You'll, yeah. you'll see if you just watch like five minutes of it. It's free. It's on Amazon Prime. And then I would also say just a quick side note about the other documentary I watched, Love Marilyn, which uh, Ernesto recommended to me, and I loved it. All of the um, the dialogue that people are reading in it are Marilyn Monroe's personal writings. So you get like mm. her actual words um, from her journals because she wrote and read a lot. She had a huge library of books. In her, in her house, and she was always reading and writing and studying and trying to get better. She spent a lot of time on her own. Um, so it's really cool, but I will say the way they do love Marilyn, they hired a bunch of actual actors, like Glenn Close, um, Viola Davis, hmm. really big actors and actresses to to read the words of Marilyn okay. as though they're, like, they're narrating it. Right. And they do it in a dramatic way. Okay. It feels a little hokey sometimes. Okay, you know? I can see that. Back to, in the first documentary I mentioned, evidently in, I don't know what year it was, but there's a document declassified by the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act. And they have the scans of this document in the documentary so you could see them. The main narrative of the documentary, he calls, I think he's a writer, he calls his editor when he sees this and he tells him, hey, I have this three page document that got released and it's it seems to implicate Bobby Kennedy in the murder of Marilyn Monroe in some some way. To legitimize this document, 
It has the official letterhead. It's signed off on, like checked off on and initialed as read by numerous high-ranking actual officials in the organization. In the FBI? Yes. Uh, in the CIA. Okay. Oh, CIA. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's okay. declassified by the FBI, but I think it's a CIA document. I don't know how that works, but whatever. There's so much, so many talking points on it. But basically, supposedly, Robert Kennedy was there in her house on the day she died. Bobby Kennedy was in her house the day she died? That's supposedly what this document suggests. And one of the Shows. big conspiracy okay. theories is that Bobby Kennedy was somehow involved. Yeah. Bobby okay. Kennedy has an alibi for that day. He was at Bates Ranch in San Francisco with John Bates. When you look at John Bates, however, he's Robert Kennedy's alibi. He's an attorney who also represented Sam Giancana, who is a huge mm -hmm. organized crime figure in Chicago. Okay. Okay. As a matter of fact, Sam Giancano, who's also known as Mooney, was named as the like mob boss in Chicago by Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. Because one of Bobby Kennedy's big things was taking down the mob. Um, which I think you know because I think it gets brought up in the Hoffa thing, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Jimmy Hoffa is also linked to this in some way. I couldn't huh. quite figure out how, but I think it's just the group of people because it's Bobby Kennedy, it's this mob boss, and I think Jimmy Hoffa was involved in it and when he was in the Teamsters. Yeah. A police officer, Lynn Franklin, who's a decorated police officer respected in the LAPD, he says that he pulled over a speeding Lincoln Town car on the, the night of Marilyn's death and he says mm -hmm. in the car was peter lawford who is bobby kennedy's brother-in-law um okay bobby kennedy and another gentleman in la and he says that okay. he pulls them over because they're speeding and they said he knew who they were of course and he said we're leaving town we're just picking up luggage so he lets them go 18 <clears throat> witnesses have come forward and seen bobby kennedy in la on that day even though he says he okay. was in san francisco another thing to uh add to this the chief of the lapd at the time tom redden he implicates robert kennedy in the incident on camera on a news interview wow okay in 1985 eunice murray the housekeeper she comes out with a statement so i think in the early 80s she wrote a book like a tell-all book the last days of Marilyn. and okay. i don't know exactly what's in there but it's supposed to provide a little bit more information in 1985 she interviewed and she says she didn't write it in the book because she was scared of what would happen to her. But Robert Kennedy was absolutely there on the day she died. Hmm. She says that he was feeling threatened by her and they had an argument mm -hmm. the day before they were having an argument. Deborah Gould, who is Peter Lawford's ex-wife, um, substantiated this as well many, 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 many years before that. The hmm. FBI and a personal investigator at the time are confirmed to have had taps on Marilyn's house and on her phones. Yeah. On the taps, she was threatening to go public with information about the Kennedys. There are certified documents from the CIA that say that Marilyn was very interested and had information about New Mexico. Doesn't say what it is. It just says like, New Mexico. There's a lot of redacted information here, but it's... it's Like Roswell? Yes. There's a lot of oh. theories that she had information about Roswell that she shouldn't have because of her relationship with JFK and Bobby Kennedy. <gasps> Marilyn knew about aliens and the government had her killed. I'm very interested in what you're saying. There are also documented <laughs> messages and telegrams from Marilyn Monroe to the president asking him information about test results from nuclear bomb tests. Robert Kennedy was on the hunt for Mooney Gi Giancana, like we said. Um, he ruled Chicago organized crime. There was a whole trial on it. And he is linked, ironically, 
to getting JFK elected in the first place. Did you hear about that in the Sinister Right. Uh, yes, I think so. I had never heard of that. JFK essentially secured Illinois, supposedly, because of this crime family. Mm -hmm. And then Bobby Kennedy is going after it right afterwards. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she knew of the Giancana crime family because of her relationship with Frank Sinatra. And Mm -hmm. yes, there's also the, so the main theory going out now, the Giancana crime family, they were hired by the CIA to assassinate Marilyn Monroe. Because she had too much information and she was threatening to go forward with it. And Mm -hmm. their plan was actually to frame Bobby Kennedy for the murder of Marilyn Monroe. Interesting. However, after Bobby Kennedy was there and whatever happened happened, the government was called to get down there and sweep any evidence of Bobby Kennedy being there. And so the Ah. evidence that was planted when Bobby Kennedy gets there is taken away. And so... The crime family is when the news of Marilyn's death comes out, they're expecting the headlines to be Bobby Kennedy involved in like cover up murder of Marilyn Monroe, big yeah. star. But they're yeah. shocked to find out it's not, which I think eventually huh. leads to the other assassinations. Maybe. Certainly oh. Papa, probably oh, okay. Bobby's. But mm-hmm. so that's a theory. Mm-hmm. And so here's some of the information that kind of links that together. So Fred Otash, he's a wiretapper for the mob, and he confesses on camera to tapping her phone and to tapping Peter Lawford's entire house. Okay. These taps were found in later years upon renovations of the house, so it's substantiated. Mm-hmm. Lawford told him that Marilyn Monroe and Bobby Kennedy had had a fight the night before. They jetted him out of L.A., and someone needed to sweep the house for evidence. The recordings, they were subpoenaed, I think, but not given mm. forth or something, because in the news article it said that Fred Otash said that the recordings would contradict the findings of Marilyn Monroe's death. This is printed in the newspaper, but never followed up on. Mm-hmm. Connie's, uh nephew confesses in 1992 on, I think, Access Hollywood or one of those type of shows. He says they wrote a book called Double Crossed, him and his um, one of his other relatives, about their the crime family and, you know, all the secrets. And he says his whole story is that the CIA wanted her dead. Um, and it's consistent. Yeah. All the information he provides is consistent with that leaked CIA de- report. The plan is to ruin the Kennedys, and they use a suppos- they use a suppository to kill her. And mm. just because of the cover up, the scheme failed. Now, hmm. Deputy Coroner Thomas Noguchi, he did not feel like the the findings were consistent with suicide. There was no suicide okay. note. The specimens that were sent out for analysis were destroyed before they were analyzed. The photographs of the medical photographs are mysteriously missing. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he he himself has always said this is not this consistent. is not consistent with a suicide. Doctor Greenson, the uh, psychiatrist, he'll never mention anything, no matter how he's questioned. But he's later reported, and there's a recording of it, so you can hear it. He says, "Quote: I can't explain myself without revealing things I don't want to reveal. It's a terrible position because I can't tell the whole story." Listen, talk to Bobby Kennedy, end quote. Hmm. So it's the first time the psychiatrist is implicating Bobby Kennedy in this. Hmm. All of these notes are still under seal, by the way. The documentary I en- I watched ended with these facts that sort of like, I guess, lend maybe credence to the conspiracy. You know, Marilyn Monroe passes away. JFK is assassinated 15 months after. Mm-hmm. Two days after that assassination, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby. Lee, Har- mm-hmm. Lee Harvey Oswald was a known hitman for Jam- Sam Giancana. Mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy is assassinated in 68. Giancana is assassinated in 75. Three weeks or six weeks later is when Hoffa goes missing. 
and mm-hmm. three other links between the Gene Kana crime family and the killings of Kennedy and Monroe, of people who were who had information, were killed in 19, before 1976, including right, an so ex-girlfriend. So, like all of the <laughs> all of the people who could either confirm or deny any of these allegations in the span of a year and a half basically disappear or die. Yes. I think that's all I have about the actual case. I have a few interesting pieces of information about Marilyn Monroe, but would you like me to save them for after we give our opinions on the case or give them now? Yeah, let's let's talk about this first before we get into that. So what's your theory? I'm just curious. Like, after, You've read a lot. Mm-hmm. I have my own theory that is probably not as well validated as yours or other folks, but I'm curious what you think happened. Before, I'm not a big conspiracy theory person. I like reading about them. I yes. sometimes I find also credence. find conspiracy theories fascinating, but I very rarely think that they have merit. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll hear a conspiracy theory and I'll believe about 12% of it. However, I fully support the fact that this was not, she did not take her life. Okay. I don't think there's any evidence to, to support that she would have. And so yeah. I think she was absolutely killed. I think it mm-hmm. was absolutely a cover-up. I think it was probably the crime family i really do i think that the story that the crime family nephew says sounds like the most viable like story to me my personal theory i also think marilyn was killed and marilyn monroe was married to arthur miller who was a communist Mm -hmm. this was like at the height of the cold war maybe not the height but this was during the period of the cold war Mm -hmm. and she had a relationship with jfk and I think that the CIA and the mob, either together or one of them, had JFK killed because they thought he was a risk to the United States. And I think that the fact that JFK and Marilyn Monroe, who was married to a communist, had a relationship at all in the period of the Cold War and kind of like coming off of like the McCarthy witch hunts. um, Mm -hmm. I think that the CIA would have reason to kill her as well as JFK, right? Like the fact that there is a woman who has an intimate relationship with the president, knows things, personal things about the president, knows things about like state secrets and government secrets. And she is, has been married to a communist and may also be a communist is reason for them to have her killed. I agree. I don't, I don't know. And I I think also I want to believe that like I, anytime somebody dies by suicide, it is heartbreaking and you never want people to be in that place of despair or despondence in any way. And so it's, it's a much more appealing theory. I think to think that there was foul play that sort of like robbed Marilyn Monroe of the rest of her life Mm -hmm. rather than it being a, a cause something that she brought about herself right like it's a more appealing theory if you thought if you like marilyn monroe and if you like want to think she was this great amazing person like it's a more appealing theory to say somebody else caused her death rather than her mental illness or um her substance use caused her death right yeah and also it's just it makes for i think a a a more gripping story to believe that so that's i will acknowledge that's part of the reason why i probably want to believe that but yeah, there's just enough things with her death that are question marks and weird and her connections to really high-level people who were engaged in some very questionable practices and connected to 
some folks who maybe caused some deaths and assassinations throughout mm-hmm. history that it, it there's there's reason to question it. You know, there's a reason why her death and her life have held such a pull in the kind of imagination of the world. Um, so that that's kind of my theory. I, I also do think that she was killed. The reason I think it's it was, it might be easier to believe the narrative that's out there that she, you know, died by suicide is because she's painted as this tragic Hollywood character who got swept up into the limelight. She got discovered and she didn't know how to handle it. And she was too sensitive for the world. And she Mm -hmm. just wanted love and like all these tragic things. But I don't feel like that's actually her life. Yeah. I don't see her as someone who is constantly getting rejected, looking for love in the wrong places, falling into bad situations. That's not really who she really was. What she really wanted was to be a respected actress and to be respected and in as a as a woman as a human being and she wanted to make decisions she was a go-getter she started her own film production she was savvy she knew how to get to the press so if she had this information she absolutely knew how to get it to the press and in an instant so there would have been an urgency to get rid of her for what where's the motive it's not i was depressed she was on the pinnacle of really good things coming she had just shot a cover shot she had just done like two interviews for a movie she was slated to be in it doesn't match up with someone who had a no. barbiturate overdose, you know? And I don't know. It just yeah, doesn't and, seem right. And when you think about, at various times, she was around a lot of men who were trying to control aspects of her life and trying to control her narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that that seems to continue after her death, right? Mm-hmm. Of uh, portraying her as this dumb blonde who just was pretty and whatever, and not this woman who really fought hard to have a lot of control and agency over her career, which by her own account was like her driving motivation was to be a well-respected, highly skilled actor. Yeah. So here's some fun things I found about her that I didn't know. Um, One cool thing that I found out about her was that she had a huge love for jazz and Ella Fitzgerald. And yes, I knew. Oh, this story I know. Oh, see, I didn't know. <laughs> I was going to bring all. it up if you didn't bring it up. <laughs> so Ernesto told me about this and told me a little story, and then I looked it up, and I'm just going to read the quote because it's better than I could do. She was a huge fan of Ella Fitzgerald, and she became friends with her, like personal friends with her. Uh-huh. And it says Dorothy Dandridge and Eartha Kitt had already performed at the Macambo, so Fitzgerald wouldn't have been the first African American to sing there. But the club's owner felt heavy set. Fitzgerald lacked the glamour to draw crowds. Monroe heard about this and approached him with a proposition. If he booked Fitzgerald, she promised to sit at the front of the house every night and bring along other celebrities. Monroe made clear that the amount of publicity this would garner, so the club owner agreed to hire Fitzgerald for a couple of weeks in 55. During this run, Monroe kept her word and sat up front, and Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland showed up on opening night. This changed Fitzgerald's career trajectory, and she later, she later told Ms. Magazine, after that, I never had to play a small jazz club again. Yep. I had no idea about any of that. Yeah. And it says Monroe was like notoriously late, like even to the um, the president's thing. Like that was like her thing. But she was, <laughs> yeah. this was the one thing she was always on time for was for Ella. That's awesome. I love that. And then another, um, Joe DiMaggio stayed friends with um, Marilyn Monroe for the, for the rest of her life. Um, mm-hmm. And when she passed, he placed a 20 year order of a half dozen roses to be placed on Monroe's grave three times a week. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm hesitant to say that's sweet because he abused her. <laughs> um, two, two last things. The, 
book I read, I think I might have talked about it in the first season, or it might have been another podcast, but it's called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins mm-hmm. Reid. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend, and I actually read that. I think they're making a series out of it, possibly. Mm. So that'll be cool if it comes out. But yeah. um, it talks about this fictional, fictionalized character, Evelyn Hugo, who is a big Hollywood star in this same time period as Marilyn Monroe would have been coming up. She's going over her life back then, and it talks about all of the things women had to do to be in the industry and all the things that mm-hmm. they had to be okay with, give up, sacrifice, um, change about themselves, alter, and the aspects of their life that were completely produced. And right. knowing that, we all kind of know a lot of that kind of stuff, but reading someone's account of it, even if it's fictionalized, um, and seeing how heavily produced the marriages were at that time. Right. Yeah. Who knows how close Marilyn Monroe was to any of the people she was dating or seeing. I mean, she's been with a lot of men. The, Ernesto even said, like, a podcast could be made just about the men in Marilyn's life over the years. Yeah, 100%. However, who's to say what her relationship was with all of these people? And I think it further goes against that sort of, like, jilted lover narrative. And the last thing I wanted to do was my interest in Marilyn Monroe kind of got peaked when I was in high school-ish days or maybe right after, early college. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because I got so frustrated. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people put, like, a stupid image on the internet on their Facebook or Instagram, and it has a... <laughs> you just put quotations around a bunch of words and then cite it to somebody, and all of a sudden it's a quote. That's yes, not how that's quotes my, one of my favorite things. There's, like, a picture of Abraham Lincoln that says, if you like, with a quote next to him that says, like, people will believe anything if you put it on the mm-hmm. internet in quotes. And it's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it's, like... <laughs> it's so yeah, true. Anyway. And it's always frustrated yeah. me because a lot of the quotes that get attributed to Marilyn Monroe, she would have mm-hmm. never in a million years said. Yeah. So I used to... I found this website a long time ago that I used to send to people. <laughs> I'm such a mm. rotten little shit. I used to go on, like, MySpace or Facebook or whatever was popular at the time. And when I'd see someone posted a Marilyn Monroe quote, uh-huh. especially if it was an image, I would put a link to this website. <laughs> because on immortalmarilyn.com, there's a page just for misquoted Marilyn. And it kind oh, of talks gosh. about things that she said that she hasn't said, why she wouldn't have said them, who actually said them. Um, right. It's like a little, little debunking page. And I just want to read a, a couple of the things that she's attributed to and how she, why now knowing this, you could know this is not true. Yeah. Here is a really popular one. Well-behaved women rarely make history. Yep. Um, that's not Marilyn Monroe. It is by nope. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, a Harvard University mm-hmm. professor, about fu- funeral rites. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that it that quote could be applied to Marilyn's conduct and behavior in life, mm-hmm. and so I think a lot of people saw that image connected to her, or saw that quote connected to her image, and started to associate that she had said that. Mm-hmm. This is a good one. I actually kind of like where this came from. So this is a quote that I've seen a lot about her was, we are all stars and deserve the right to twinkle. I've seen this all over the place. Oh, Lindsay Lohan mm-hmm. has this on her wrist, I think. Shut I up. think it said it on one of the articles that Lindsay Lohan has this on her <laughs> wrist. Uh, I don't know if it's a tattoo or a bracelet. I hope it's a tattoo. So in a telegram from June 13th, 1962, Marilyn declined an invitation to a party and she wrote, quote, Unfortunately, I'm involved in a freedom ride protesting the loss of the minority rights belonging to the few remaining earthbound stars. All we demanded was our right to twinkle. What a difference. Yeah. And what a better message. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Um, but the one that gets me so mad, it's about her her weight. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is one that gets all over the place. To all those girls who think they're fat for not being a size zero, it's not you who's ugly, it's society. Mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. Mar- but she didn't say No. That. And Marilyn Monroe <laughs> is plastered on these um, images in like these bathing suits and stuff. And they're like, look at this curvaceous woman. She was the standard of beauty at this time. Yeah. Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> Monroe's measurements were 37, 22, 35, and she weighed 117 pounds. Yeah, she was very petite. She was never looked at as curvy. She was no. always looked at as very petite. And she would have been mortified if someone pointed her out as being, like, overweight because yeah. of the standards that were on her at the time to stay one, I feel in like that one of the, role. One of the things that I sort of, like, heard about Marilyn was that she was a woman whose, like, weight fluctuated a fair amount and, like, her her closet had dresses that were size zero up to, like, size 14 or something. I don't know if that's accurate or not either, though. I don't know either. The only thing I will say is that the reason why the size zero is wrong is because size zero was not a thing while she was alive. (laughs) Oh, well, So size zero did not come out until Twiggy was a model, and that's when it got. In 1966, they invented size zero. Size zero. So that part is not true, but I I do know that weight was something that was, like, heavily put upon her, as with other women at the time and now. Um so things like that just get me mad because this is the type yeah. of stuff that characterizes her as a person. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's silly, like, oh, yeah, silly quotes, so it's not her, whatever. It's what characterizes her as a person. It's what lends the credence that she was, like, a dumb blonde who mm-hmm. just kind of, like, fell, in, fell into this life and all this stuff. And it, it devalues, like, the actual person she is and the things that she would say. Okay, so this is just some, of, some actual quotes from her that show who she really was. Please don't make me a joke. End the interview with what I believe. I don't mind making jokes, but I don't want to look like one. I want to be an artist, an actress with integrity. That's who Marilyn Monroe really was. Yeah. She says, What I really want to say, that what the world really needs is a real feeling of kinship. Everybody, stars, laborers, Jews, Arabs, we are all brothers. She says, That's, that. why isn't that on all the Marilyn Monroe posters? Right. Exactly. She says, that's the trouble. A sex symbol becomes a thing. I just hate mm-hmm. to be a thing. But if I'm going mm-hmm. to be a symbol of something, I'd rather ha- I'd rather have it sex than some other things they've got symbols of. Hmm. Um, and this is one that gets attributed to her that's actually true. You can read about yourself, but what's important is how you feel about yourself. Damn. She's I like that. really a bright, deep... Yeah, she's got some good, insightful thoughts. Yeah, she's an introspective person. And yeah. I just... I, I'm so changed um, my opinion about her. And yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought this was really fascinating. So it's totally changed my opinion. I totally buy into the conspiracy. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Well, great job. That Such an interesting story. I wish that her life hadn't ended when it did, because I feel like it would have been so interesting to watch her continue kind of her trajectory beyond that you know yeah how would you rate the episode on watchability and how it dealt with the topic um i would say watchability i'm gonna give it in i'll give it a b plus yeah i i would agree with that that was gonna be my pick as well yeah and then i would say for how it dealt with the crime dealt with the issue i'll give it a i'll give it a b yeah i mean it I didn't love the way they talked about the about people who 
do sex work in the adult film industry, mm. but I'm not surprised how they talked about them True. in that episode and how they portrayed them. But I will say, you know, I mean, it, there wasn't anything horrendously offensive in the episode, so I'll give it a B minus. Okay. I think that's fair. Well, if you would like to help us grow, the best thing you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to our episodes. Yeah, and tell your friends who you might think be interested because word of mouth is huge. And as you can tell, we cover a lot of things, not just crime. (laughs) Marilyn Monroe. So many things, (laughs) honestly. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We love getting emails and... Honestly, I feel like everybody has an opinion about Marilyn Monroe's story, so I would love to get some emails from listeners to hear what you think about it. Seriously, even if you're like, are you folks insane? Kidding? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And please... If you disagree with us, email us anyway. Yeah, email us anyway. We like hearing from you. And please don't forget to check out our website. It's rippedheadlinespod.com. We'll be launching a newsletter. We have a merch store and a Patreon launching very soon. We've got really cool things on the way, so check it out. Yes. And if you are a podcaster or you think there is another podcast out there that we should collaborate with us, please put us in touch. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.